This is Looking Back, a program where I'll be remembering highlights, low points, adventures, and lessons learned during my first 75 years. I'm Robert Harmon, and I'll be looking back at an often unplanned but mainly grateful life. I hope you'll join me as I throw in a little history, culture, and observations along the way. This is the third and final episode of my travels in the USA in 1970. This episode is called Disneyland, Cheesecake, and the Wee Bruin Bag. The Greyhound bus driver announced that we were entering Los Angeles County, which I took to mean we were almost there. We weren't, and the bus kept going for a seemingly very long time afterwards before arriving at the bus terminus. My handy little student guidebook suggested a convenient hotel within walking distance, and since the sun was setting, I headed in that direction. I hadn't gone too far when an LAPD car pulled up alongside me, and an officer asked me where I was heading. When I answered, he suggested that I turn around and go back in the opposite direction, and ended with the ominous words, If you go any farther down there, we cannot be responsible for your safety. As the car drove off, I stood momentarily in a quandary, but decided to keep going, sure that I was pretty close to my destination. The hotel was truly a dump, and I thought of leaving, but, unsure of my options, chose to stay. My fourth-floor windows had bars in them, which made me feel safe and scared simultaneously. At some point in the night, I was awoken and heard a violent altercation in the alley below, glass being broken, several loud swearing voices. Someone was obviously being beaten up, but thankfully there were no gunshots. Next morning, the same silent, guarded, sullen face was at the desk as I left to get breakfast somewhere before catching the bus to Disneyland. While in the ticket line at Disneyland, I made the acquaintance of a young Japanese woman with our two different versions of heavily accented English. We ended up spending the day together, making the visit much more enjoyable. It was great fun being a young kid for a day and getting to share the experience was an added treat. Realizing it would be impossible to see everything, we wandered around with no real plan other than to enjoy ourselves. We saw an animatronic Abe Lincoln give a speech, went on a jungle cruise and got startled by a hippo appearing suddenly from nowhere, saw a naval battle at the Pirates of the Caribbean, held on tight on the Matterhorn bobsled ride, managed to have lunch, travelled on Mark Twain's riverboat, travelled around on the silent, swift monorail, and saw something dealing with the world of tomorrow. Although little of that future has come to pass, the joy and laughter that I shared that day stayed with me for a very long time. 
the judgmental part of me was occasionally ready to criticize the schmaltziness of the whole place. But I told my inner critic to just shut up and get lost. I'd come about 6,000 miles for this, and I was really ready to enjoy myself. Later, the Japanese lady and I went our separate ways after thanking the other for adding greatly to our shared day of enjoyment. And I also learned to count to four in Japanese. I've always liked and remembered the itchy knee bit. I did get a glimpse of Donald Duck on Main Street, but he was too busy with kids much younger than me. But not much younger, because I left Disneyland much more childlike than when I'd arrived. Having accomplished and enjoyed my three must-see destinations, the Niagara Falls, the Grand Canyon, and now Disneyland, I headed slowly up the west coast. I loved wandering around San Francisco, going on the trolleys and seeing the incredible views of the bay and the city. Seeing Chinatown for the first time was the best because it was so unexpectedly colorful, culturally different, and a joy to aimlessly wander around. Fisherman's Wharf was a hoot, but what beat everything was bumping into the guy who sat next to me on the plane over from London. He had taken the northern route, and I the southern, and we had met in the middle. We had a few beers together over dinner, then exchanged travel stories and recommendations of places to see, before continuing on our separate journeys. Not long after getting out of the army in 1967, Scott McKenzie's song about going to San Francisco with flowers in your hair was unbelievably popular and made the Haight-Ashbury area a destination during the time of flower power. By the time I arrived in 1970, the pot-smoking hippies had left and sadly, heroin addiction had moved in. I didn't stay long at that crossroad before I made my way over the bay to Oakland, then up Telegraph Avenue to People's Park, close to the UCLA campus. This is where the young, happy, frisbee-throwing, political, yet laid-back people were. Even though there were lots of police strolling around, there was a general mood of cool happiness, but with an edge. Vietnam was very much on everybody's mind, it seemed. I couldn't throw a frisbee, but the friends I made that day while strolling around the campus didn't seem to mind. Before long, I was being invited back to a large house they shared with others. There were about six or seven young people all students sharing the house, and it was agreed that not only could I eat dinner with them, but I was welcome to overnight there as well. The longer I was in the country, and the more I travelled around, it became impossible not to notice the friendliness and generosity of the people I met. The very first evening meal I shared with my new hosts is memorable for numerous reasons. In the middle of the large dining room floor was a very large circular metal platter filled with cooked vegetables and rice 
plates, utensils, napkins nearby, plus two large pitchers of water and glasses. Everyone sat cross-legged in the circle, and there was a moment of quiet contemplation with some incense filling the room. I'd never been in such a situation before. All this was new to me, so I simply followed along with my brain going a million miles a second. Why eat on the floor? Is this some sort of religious thing? Why are they only eating vegetables? Eventually, trying to make sense of everything, I said something which momentarily ended all the hubbub of conversation. I said, when I was in Santa Barbara, I discovered you could get four hamburgers for a dollar. Do you have places like that here? By the silence, I immediately knew I'd said something out of place. We're vegetarians, came the reply. This was another new word for me, and I told them so. They were kind enough to explain, to not ask me to leave, and they all got a good laugh out of my question. Looking back at my various encounters, I've often thought that perhaps the novelty of my accent endeared me to people, and imagining them still tell the story of their encounter with a young Scotsman who'd never heard of vegetables. Thus started my own tentative vegetarian path, with the occasional slide into the old dietary habits over the years. I had a great few days in Berkeley, enjoying the weather and the company, and learned more of why Nixon was so hated. Long before visiting the U.S., I'd had a vision of California as some sort of cool, huge Disneyland. My 1970 visit and subsequent return in 1978 disabused me of that notion with the almost 16 years of California presidential leadership under Nixon and Reagan. With their arrival came the start of the enrichment of the wealthy and the war on poverty and the creation of the 1%, policies which have caused the current societal and political divisions. Although I had been keen to have my L.A. hotel stricken from the list of recommendations, I had no such qualms about my hotel in Portland, Oregon, whose name I forget. Large rooms, fairly inexpensive, right downtown, with a bar frequented mainly by people my age. I fitted right in, and the best of all, it seemed to me that pot smoking was as prevalent there as beer drinking. I really fell in love with Portland for its walkability, parks, lush vegetation, and its size. I also remember being asked one night if I wanted to go to see Frank Zappa in concert. Never having heard the name before, I stupidly declined. I also remember going with a few folks on a drive to Cannon Beach. After we arrived, I quickly took off my shoes and socks while thinking of Hollywood musicals set in the Pacific, and I ran down the beach into the water, and by the second or third step, I thought I was going to have a heart attack. The water was so icy cold. It was only then that I understood why nobody else had joined me. The water was much, much colder than the North Sea at Aberdeen, even though Aberdeen is much, much farther north. I learned that there was nothing akin to the Mexican Gulf Stream, 
which takes warm water from the Gulf to Murmansk in the Russian Arctic via the British Isles. From Portland, I made my way to Seattle with the notion of taking a slight detour to Aberdeen, Washington. I liked the idea of sending a postcard from Aberdeen, Washington to Aberdeen, Scotland, but the bus times weren't convenient, so it didn't happen. I was slowly learning bits of American history as I travelled, piecing together my patchwork quilt of new information, trying to make sense of it. I had a hard time contextualising Seattle because it was such an enormous city, and I was curious to know how it had happened. I had learned by then that not many Anglo-Europeans had lived west of the Mississippi when the Civil War ended in 1865. Yet by 1880, Seattle had a population of 4,000. By 1890, a population of 43,000, 1900, a population of 80,000, and a population of 240,000 by 1910. I found those figures astonishing and then heard about the impact of the Alaska gold rush, and it made a little bit more sense, but not much. I did, however, like that the newcomers named the city after an Indian chief who had impressed them. It seemed like the least they could do. In Vancouver, I went to the aquarium in Stanley Park, where people were being entertained by a captured orca. I didn't care much for the spectacle of seeing this enormous killer whale do tricks for food. I think it was called Shamu. I like to think that Shamu meant something like, shame on you for doing this to me. Just a thought. Now that I was in Canada again, with only a few weeks of vacation left, I knew I needed to start heading back east. Soon it was time to board an overnight bus at Vancouver to start the 14-hour journey to Calgary via Banff. During that journey, I got talking with a young woman whose parents were from Scotland, a place she'd never seen. When we got to Calgary, she told me her parents would probably like to meet me as they hadn't been in Scotland in a really, really long time and that they were originally from Aberdeen. I had a fun time reminiscing with the parents about Aberdeen and the changes caused there by the discovery of North Sea oil. After dinner, the mother asked if I'd like some cheesecake. My immediate mental image conjured up something akin to fruitcake with an overlay of cheddar, so I declined. I am a self-confessed, very, very picky eater. Soon the mother was bringing out something that looked nothing like I had imagined, and before long there were mmms and ahs, followed by delicious, and that had me reconsidering my decision and wondering if it would be okay to change my mind. I did change my mind, and that was my introduction to cheesecake, something I have never, ever again refused. Heading back east, my least favourite place I passed through was Sudbury. It was supposedly the nickel mining capital of the world. It looked like an enormous, hellish lunar landscape of desolation. I was glad we were just passing through. 
before I knew it, my holiday was almost at an end. The night before my return to a much less sunny Scotland, I found myself reminiscing about my American visit. I had arrived slightly nervous, but quickly found myself welcomed by family and strangers alike, which quickly put me at ease. I'd been welcomed into people's company, even to their homes, and for that I was surprised and thankful. I'd had a great time, seen incredible sights and places, and gotten to appreciate just how truly huge the U.S. was. Best of all, I now felt much more at peace with myself. I came to appreciate that Americans were, for the most part, generous, genuinely friendly people. Not only that, but there seemed to be few of the class divisions that existed in Britain. In Scotland, my working-class accent always gave me away and ascribed me to a place near the bottom in the social hierarchy. In class-constrained Britain, for example, the chances of me becoming friends with a doctor or a lawyer would have been slim to none. The truth was that the Americans I'd met had treated me well, had healed me in a very fundamental way, and had helped me learn something about myself that was going to carry me forward with much more self-confidence. Next day, I was at Kennedy Airport, waiting in line to board the plane back to London. I noticed that the line was moving unusually slowly, and soon heard that there were new heightened security measures because of the recent PLO hijackings. The procedure remained a mystery until it was my turn to go through a metal detector. I was immediately nervous because of what was in my possession. Sure enough, my passage through the machine caused an instant buzzing sound. I went through again with the same result. A uniformed official came over and asked me to follow him, and I started to get uncomfortable. I followed him and his partner over to a table and was asked to hand over the small brown paper sack in my hand. It contained a new an unused small brass hash pipe. Where did you get this? they asked. From a small shop in Toronto. What's this for? came the next question. Thinking quickly, I said, I don't know what it's for, but I know who it's for. Who's it for? It's for my father. He collects pipes, and this one is amazing. After gently taking the pipe from the officer's hand, I started to disassemble it. I continued, this pipe comes apart, and I know he doesn't have one like this. The officer took back the small four-inch brass pipe and continued the disassembly, turning it into a collection of about 12 small pieces plus some fine wire mesh. They inspected and sniffed each part, then not bothering to reassemble it, put it back into the bag while asking curiously, where are you from? 
By then, I was totally into the role of the clueless innocent and replied, A wee village in the highlands of Scotland. They gave me back my small brown bag and sent me on my way. I walked quickly across the concourse, nervous yet relieved, convinced that I was going to flush the small bag of pot hidden in my possession down the toilet as soon as I got on the plane. I climbed the stairs, got on the plane, sat down and relaxed, glad that they hadn't searched me and that sniffer dogs weren't a thing yet. I've done some really stupid things before, like signing up to join the army the day I turned 17 and a half. But my other wee Bruin bag stunt was by far the stupidest thing I've ever done. Most of the time, I tend to be law-abiding, level-headed, somewhat fearful, cautious, and not one for taking big risks. Occasionally, however, that more sensible and balanced side of me gets sidestepped and overruled. It doesn't happen too often, but when it does, it's been a very fine line between walking away safely and landing in real trouble. Thankfully, I've usually been lucky and able to be on my way with a pounding, thankful heart and a promise to myself not to ever be so dumb again. It's a promise that I keep most of the time, but on occasion, my brain just seems to go to mush and my directional compass goes haywire with thoughts of fun and adventure on this wonderful journey called life. <laughs>